This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. A lot of the world, and rightly so, focused on the death of the queen. But while that was happening here at home in the United States of America, the FBI came out with these statistics. 6,000 alleged violent criminals and gang members arrested, seized more than 2,700 firearms connected to criminal conduct. Throughout the summer, according to the FBI, the Bureau and its partners also disrupted nearly 845 and dismantled 105 violent gangs and criminal enterprises. And seize large quantities of fentanyl and other deadly narcotics. So that was the line, the statement from the FBI. And there was also this videotape statement released to the media from FBI Director Christopher Wray. Let's listen. I believe the FBI's most sacred duty is to ensure people can live free from fear in their own homes and neighborhoods. To that end, we dedicate agents analysts, and technical resources across the country to work with state and local law enforcement on these operations. All right, so you have the FBI director's take on all this, but what's the bottom line here? How has it impacted crime in these communities where there's been this uptick? I have an interview that you will not hear anywhere else with one of the top FBI agents. Thomas Sobosinski, who is the special agent in charge of the FBI field office in Baltimore. Special agent in charge, Sobosinski, thanks for being with us. All right, so the FBI this past week announced several things in its uh, crime-fighting efforts. When I say several things, I mean several statistics. Let's get deeper into the numbers. 6,000 arrests. How does that impact crime fighting across the country? Well, I, I think, first of all, it shows that the FBI is still a, at, at the heart a law enforcement agency. And so while other things may hit the front page of the news, whether it be our cyber investigations, our counterterrorism or our counterintelligence, uh, at the heart of who we are, our investigations, and right now in this country, I think violent crime is touching upon most communities and that we are still there and, and trying to do our best to, to be a good partner in reducing those rates. How, how has gang violence across the country contributed to the problems that we're seeing in, in so many cities and not just cities, rural areas as well? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll start with the definition of gangs. I think people have a, a fairly, uh, 
historical view on what a gang is. And so, you know, you see on TV, there, there are these groups and they have a certain area and they're in and, and in LA in the eighties and nineties had a, you know, the bloods and the crips. And although those type of traditional gangs still exist, I think what law enforcement has found recently is that we have these loosely connected neighborhood based gangs of individuals who come together for, you know, social or business or criminal reasons that all of a sudden are getting engaged in more violent acts than we've seen before. And have, you know, given all of these partnerships that the FBI has engaged in with local police across the country, would you consider these task forces, based on the numbers that the FBI has released this past week, would you consider these task forces a success? Yes. I think they're the first step in larger success, but in but but at its core, it's building upon things we do every day. And so, you know, from my perspective here in, in Maryland and, and and Baltimore in particular. You know, I talk to the commissioner and other chiefs in this area on a regular basis, if not a daily basis, and really structure how I'm going to respond with my agents, analysts, and other employees to support what they're doing. They are on the front lines of the violent crime uh, issue right now. And so for us, it's really how can we help them and what are some of the unique things that the FBI can provide to make their job easier. But I, but I just want to go back also to say, you know, we recognize that this is not a purely law enforcement problem. None of us believe that we're going to be able to arrest our way out of, of, of a higher violence or crime rate. We are just one piece of this trying to work towards, you know, a shared goal with other gov- government entities and, and non-government entities as well. So in Baltimore, for example, a city that... Boy, do I love Baltimore. I I work there. I one of my kids was born there. It's a a great community that often gets a bad rap because of crime. How would you how would you characterize the problems in the city of Baltimore? Yeah, well, first I'll start off just like you. I, I was actually born here and my, my parents still live in the area. So this is this is home for me. And I think what you know, a couple things makes Baltimore unique is one, there is just a a media view of what Baltimore is that I don't think accurately reflects what we're really dealing with. And what we're dealing with is this is a community. There are people that live in Baltimore that are not engaged in violence, that don't want to engage in violence, that are unfortunately becoming victims of violence. And so I think I just like to talk about that because it is a community. I want to make sure everybody realizes that these are real people and they're not, this is not a a made for TV crime story. And so what we do is really quickly, it was how do we shift resources? And in this particular, it was the summer to make sure that, that we have an impact in reducing or potentially, you know, solving the crimes for the crimes that committed also potentially being out there in a way that would stop the crimes from being committed 
and then also really getting into the heart of that community to make sure that they know that we're not some, you know, we're, we're their FBI. We are part of this community. It's important for me to have them know that. It's also important for, for my employees to, to really recognize that responsibility that we are also part of that community. So from the enforcement piece of that, um, we did increase resources at the beginning of this year to focus on violent crime, um, both as, as investigations, but also on our analytical, our intelligence side of the house to try to figure out if we could identify really, you know, violent actors to go after the worst of the worst. The other part of that is we this summer decided to do an outreach community event where, you know, we just had anywhere from 30 to 50 FBI employees go out once a week to each of the nine districts in Baltimore. And we just walked around. We picked areas that we knew um, had had recent criminal, violent crime activity, but we were out there not in our typical ray jackets and not doing the typical things we, we normally do. We were out there in a tent in, in groups, just walking around into, into the malls, into the stores, into the community centers, and just hearing the stories and, and, and just really getting a more human view on what the impact of this violence is. And so it did two things for me is, is first of all, I, I think it did have a positive impact on the community's view of the FBI. I kept hearing of what are you doing? We don't see you, we don't hear about you. And so A, now they know who we are and B, it really did open the eyes of a bunch of my employees into what, you know, what that community is going through right now. That's interesting that they would, well, let me put it this way. I'm not surprised that they would say uh, that we don't see the FBI. We don't hear the FBI because so often in all of these communities across the country, people just don't understand the role of the FBI in some of these cases and how the ATF, the FBI can help local communities in terms of, you know, tracing uh, guns, tracing ammunition, the forensic help that the FBI and the ATF can provide. And, and so they often see local police first and that's all they, you know, quite honestly, that's what they recognize. And so, you know, I'm not surprised and I'm sure you weren't surprised that you, you heard from people who said, you know, we don't see you here. No, no, I wasn't. I think, you know, and, and that is a lot of that is, is not just, you know, happenstance. It's by design. I think that it is less important for me right now to have the FBI's brand out there being tied to these enforcement actions and more important to have an overall trust in law enforcement um, with with how how the the law enforcement community is responding to violence. Sometimes that's having the FBI be very visible, but other times right now it's it's taking a back seat and allowing our state and local partners to really be the face of that response. Because I think like you mentioned earlier, they are the ones that are gonna have to respond to these as they're unfolding. What, you know, the question that I get all the time is what's happening now that is different in terms of the in terms of the kinds of crimes that we're seeing across the country and why the numbers have gone up what is different now than you know 
the the situation five, six years ago? What has changed? Was it just the pandemic or were there other factors within the pandemic that led to these spikes in crime? Yeah, I I wish I had that answer. And, And we are struggling. All of us are struggling and working for working through it to try to figure out that answer. I think so for us, it, it varies across, you know, different cities. So some of the areas that I'm working on and what what I see are, you know, there. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. I've got a weird. Sorry, I've just got a weird buzz and I'm trying to make sure it's. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Going back to that answer. Um, Yeah. So one thing that we are seeing that I think is really unique is the increase in grievance, you know, these personal grievance shootings. So it's not, you know, it's not related to drugs as much as it used to be. It's these, you know, somebody's at a stoplight. Um, or somebody gets cut off or somebody saw something posted on social media about them or a friend of theirs that is quickly escalating into violence. The other part of that is, at least in in the area that we're working here, is the amount of actual bullets coming out of guns is increasing. And so where you used to see uh, an event that may have one shooter shooting one or two people and a few bullets, you now have one shooter shooting 30, 40, 60, 100 bullets in one incident. And that, although it sounds very clinical when I talk about it, the personal impact of what that looks like in an inner city means you are going to have a lot more victims at one crime. And so I think that is something that is very clear, at least here right now, is that the that you are having, you know, more events, but you're also having more events with more victims. Well, let's let's talk about that last point. The amount of actual bullets coming out of guns is increasing. I think that's interesting. And I want to I want to get your thoughts about that. More of your thoughts about that. Why are these criminals feeling the need to you know, buy the or convert weapons into, you know, fully automatic machine guns, firing as many bullets as possible. Why is it, is it that they want to be absolutely sure that they commit the crime? What, what drives them to, to want to load up with the kind of ammunition that you would see in a war zone? Yeah, I, I think, the first answer is that it's available. I mean, I think that, you know, where you may have had 50, 60, 70 years ago, a revolver, six shots, you now have the availability of of, of more weapons that, that have and carry more ammunition. So I think that just as a, a, a basis is there. And then the reason as to why they're actually shooting more, I mean, I think there are more automatic weapons. I think that Um, There are certain really easy things that folks are doing to convert semi-automatic into fully automatic. I think there's a cultural view of it's, it's, I hate to say it, but cool to have this military style weapon that shoots, you know, automatically. And so I think it's a combination of all of that. But then it gets down into, you know, for us is why are they pulling the trigger in that moment? 
And how do we get in front of that? And I think that's what we're focusing on right now is that in a perfect world, we stop it before the trigger, that trigger gets pulled. But if not, then here in the FBI and with our partners, how do we go and look for folks that are just going to pull the trigger? If you're if you are going to shoot somebody, it doesn't rarely does it mean you're going to only do it once. It means you've done it and you're probably going to do it again. And so for us, it's focusing on those individuals who are shooting in multiple events that for a variety of reasons we have not identified or we've not been able to put them in jail. And so those high violent actors are the ones that the FBI is really focused on getting involved in right now. So when you talk about the numbers that that we've put out and that the director has talked about recently, you know, although there I think they're pretty s- significant numbers, it's the it's the what those numbers mean of who those individuals are that we are putting in jail, those criminal gangs that we are disrupting and stopping. I think that's really where the impact is happening greatly, greatly outside of what those numbers are showing. Here's what I learned covering news and covering crime on on the streets of Baltimore as well as the streets of New York City. I, I learned this term trigger pullers. I learned it from police, and and that's what you're describing here. There are certain people in communities who are known to be responsible for, uh, you know, uh, uh, they have a rap sheet. I mean, they have a history with law enforcement, and they are known to, to pull the trigger that they they will not think twice before taking somebody else's life. They are trigger pullers. They're driving crime in a lot of these communities. So that's what you're describing, these trigger pullers. And you also talked about this increase in personal grievance issues. Are there just more angry people out there? People have a shorter fuse. I mean, to be honest, you see it sometimes driving on the highways, you know, you know, people are, are speeding, cutting people off. You know, I mean, you see that, you know, I don't know if it's the pandemic. I don't, I just, you know, I don't know if it's the environment that we're in these days, but you talked about this increase in personal grievance issues. Why is now different than years past? I mean, you've been with the FBI for a long time. Well, what do you think has changed? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you started with, COVID. I mean, I do think that that had a psychological effect on on how people are now out and about in the world. I just think that, you know, as as that shifts and there's multiple reasons for it, people are just fed up with it. And so if you have a gun and you're you're there and, and, and that's part of your lifestyle and you're comfortable doing that, then people are going to be more willing to, to shoot somebody. Let's let's talk about the FBI. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the threats against law enforcement over the last couple of months or so. Um, how has, in your view, the rank and file at the field office in Baltimore, as well as throughout the Bureau, how has it reacted to uh, this environment that they are facing? That is an incredibly loaded question. I mean, I think the one thing is, is that we are focused on our mission. 
And the mission is really, really simple. It is we protect the American people and we uphold the Constitution. And so as long as we continue to focus on that, I think that alone really keeps my team, you know, focused on and motivated to do this job. You don't come into this job for the money. You don't come into this job for the easy hours, the work schedule or anything else. You focus on the mission. And I really do think whether it's violent crime, national security issues, um, we are absolutely focused on that. However, it is incredibly difficult to be seeing an organization and our agents attacked on a personal level. And I don't think any, anybody would, would argue with that. And so, you know, part of my job is, has always been to ensure that my, my team and their families continue to remain safe. Um, and we unfortunately are going to have to expand that in different ways to make sure that they, they stay safe. And in terms of uh, fighting crime, as we wrap this up, are you optimistic that the trends that we've been seeing in terms of crime going up across this country, are you optimistic that the trend will turn, that the tide will turn? I think if, if we use history as an example, it, it will turn. I do think, though, that there are a lot of factors coming into play right now that makes this different than, than other moments in time. I am comfortable that the FBI is poised and that my state and local partners are ready to shift in a way that will add into that reduction. But there are absolutely things that are outside of our control that we will never be able to address that have a significant impact on these, on these violent events. Okay, like what? What specifically? You know, I, 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 you know, as an FBI agent, I, you, you see that there are a bunch of things going on. I mean, there are things that I can't talk about, and I'm not going to put our logo on it. But I think that it is, you know, it is just a tough time to be in law enforcement. Um, I am comfortable with the discussion of what law enforcement is is being asked to do. And we recognize that there's changes and, and everybody is focused on, on what that looks like. But focusing on the core mission of what we do is, is what we're going to do every morning. Ronald Surpass is the former police superintendent of the New Orleans Police Department. And trust me, you're going to hear that in his accent. Stay tuned. He was also, though, the chief of the Washington State Patrol. He is now on the faculty at Loyola University, New Orleans. Ronald Surpass, thanks for coming back to America Change Forever. Really appreciate your input. What, what do you think of the, the numbers that the FBI put out? Well, I think it reminds us that there's two types of policing in America. One is referred as proactive, which means you're using resources dedicated to go look for problem places and problem events. The other is reactive, which means you're responding after something happens and also means by definition you're late and a victim has already been created. So these types of efforts that you saw with the FBI and many local law enforcement agencies are clearly in the proactive arena and they have been proven not only experientially but professionally to reduce crime. You led some pretty big law enforcement agencies. How, how important are these partnerships between federal 
and local in terms of fighting crime? I think there's 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 a lot of ways to look at that, Jeff. One is I think the public wants to know that local, state, and federal agencies are working together to make them safer. Secondly, in the criminal world, there often is more fear of federal prosecution and federal prison sentencing than there is in the local or state. Those two things combined together can be successful. Third, federal law enforcement agencies obviously do not have a general law enforcement duty, but what they do have is a tremendous amount of assets and the ability to further sometimes the very limited ability of crime fighting for big cities today that are suffering staffing shortages. Well, you mentioned these staffing shortages. How, uh, when you look at some of the drivers uh, of the spike in crime in some cities, uh, to what do you attribute the rising crime? There's obviously a lot of socioeconomical conditions, but I will say this to you. When we think about the definition of proactive policing, I provided in reactive policing, when you're losing staff at a rate that you cannot replace them, the first thing that goes is the proactive response. Police departments and cities will respond reactively after the fact. That'll be their mode of distribution of resources. That'll be their, that'll be their credo of the day. We're going to get there really fast. But really, Jeff, it's always late by definition and a crime has already occurred. Staffing is crucial to be able to put out a proactive effort, which points again to why we saw some success with the FBI joining efforts with local agencies in a proactive mode. You talk about the staffing levels. I recently got back from Colorado where I was you know, doing a story with Uh, Colorado State Police, and they talked about how their numbers in terms of recruiting are going up. Um, And I, you know, asked them a few questions about, well, why do you think that is? You know, have you increased benefits? Yada, yada, yada. And they, you know, didn't confirm that they've increased benefits, but they've just, you know, they've, they've tried to recruit in such a way that they're, you know, painting a positive picture of law enforcement and encouraging people to get involved in their communities, things like that. What do you, what are you seeing across the country? Are uh, police departments, are recruiting efforts paying off where over the last several years they were having a hard time after George Floyd's death? What do you see? Jeff, as you know, I was the chief of the Washington State Patrol. I was the chief of the Nashville Police Department. I was the chief of the New Orleans Police Department. So first things first, recruiting is always a difficult task because there's so few people that make it through all the necessary checks and balances to ensure you've got really altruistically motivated people. So it's always been a challenge. In the two years since the murder of George Floyd, I'm sure there has been some complications in some cities. I'm sure that we also have to recognize, Jeff, that the United States is not the major media outlets that we see in the big cities. So as I travel the country and I work throughout the country still, in departments that are not, if you will, in the major media bubbles, they tend to still be doing well, subject to the constraints I said originally. It's difficult to get the right people for the right reasons to join policing. In the big major media bubbles, there's so much conversation that's important, but it's really maybe having some distracting effect on getting police officers recruited. At the end of the day, it's always going to be recruiting from the human experience, 
It's always going to be identifying the people who are there for the altruistic reasons that you need. And as we've known since the 1930s, if we can recruit higher educated people, we have greater opportunity to reduce use of force, reduce complaints of misconduct. And there's some new studies, Jeff, that suggest that higher educated officers may be reducing the use of force across racial events. So there's a lot to unpeel here. That is interesting. Prior to my interview with you, I was talking to the special agent in charge of the FBI field office in Baltimore who who brought up some uh, trends that he and the FBI has seen in terms of fighting crime. For one, increase they've noticed an increase in personal grievance issues. What do you think about that? Well, what do you think? Um, why do you think that is, I guess, is what I'm asking, Lionel. Well, it, it is an incredible, it's a very important question because even through my tenure in New Orleans and ended in the summer of 14, but my continued work studying this, I think we're seeing an issue that's going to have to be confronted in the continued devaluation of life by some young people. And, and Jeff, I'm going to be honest with you, as a police chief and as a, as a professor, when you read the details of some of these murders and just simple incivilities between people that result in the ultimate act of death, um, it's really hard for us to wrap our brains around it. There's many issues that have to be confronted, but simply put, I was a very and continue to be a very big advocate of Dr. Gary Slutkin's cure violence model, often this called past cure week, violence. Chicago. California Governor that Gavin model Newsom, is dependent upon trusted voices in many things, trusted voices in the neighborhoods, talking to young people, helping them see a better use. way. It is As a you may know from Baltimore, there have been the trusted voices working in that environment who've actually been killed by would young prevent accidental So I think the bigger overdose. question is, is how do we touch the these youngsters would have called who really for these see any injection sites as probable cause in Los will, Angeles, San Francisco, and shoot and kill someone else? And more through the end Jeff, of look at what's going on in Chicago and other cities. And so they the will bill find was someone that they're angry with. I think it's an interesting and discussion. And they could be in a crowd of 50 and people so we have the author of the legislation with recently. us now. And then they Senator just Scott Wiener represents uh, tremendous San Francisco. Senator Wiener, thanks for being with us. I'll say this, Jeff. All right. So when I was a young cop the in the governor 80s and 90s, has vetoed organized groups and gangs would not allow their kids to do that. There's been some change there where they're doing it. Does this mean this? legislation yeah, something, is something is going is on. dead or are you going to keep pushing for it we, you know we tend to throw around the term senseless violence and it, it sounds so cliche but that's really what this stuff is it is stupidity just stupidity to you know the fire into crowds of people at funerals at you know, church events, community events. It's just incredible what we are seeing. And, and I think you're, you bring up a good point. It's, it's just that these, these people who commit these crimes uh, in these communities, it's almost like they don't, they don't understand the finality of what it is to take somebody's life and the consequences uh, that it will cause that it will lead to in their own lives. It's really, it is remarkable to me sometimes to go to the scenes of, of these shootings. And yeah, first you notice, you know, the loss of life. And then you notice, you know, a hundred uh, shell casings all over the street. I mean, it, it's, it's really, 
it's it's really distressing to see how much that kind of thing happens on a daily basis in this country. It's truly the most frightening thing that we can see. And I, I try to put into the minds of people when we talk about this, that when you watch the news, your local news, and you see the scene of a shooting and you see all those little, you know, bright yellow teepees, if you will. At a shooting scene, those bright yellow teepees are almost always going to be locations where bullet casings lie. Um, and it just should it, it should just continue to grab our consciousness. The other thing that we uh, have reason to believe um, experimentally, right, academically, is when you interview these young men who have actually used a gun in the conduct of a crime, they will tell you they often hired a gun because they were afraid. They will also tell you that they're getting most of their guns, if not all of their guns, inside the illegal market of trading guns among illegal activities. So we have to consider that quality gun laws are important, but we can't expect that that's going to solve the question of the illegal use of an illegal weapon. And in many cities, Jeff, this is going to shock you. A lot of them just come from people's cars that they don't lock them up. It's it's really frightening. Um, so we have to think about it more than just the legal gun transactions that occur in the country. We actually need to remember ourselves that just like with narcotics, there is a supply and a demand, and that's all in an illegal market. Guns, there's a supply and there's a demand, and it's in the illegal area. Yeah, which reminds me of something else that the FBI told us in our interview uh, something else that stands out for them, the amount of actual bullets coming out of guns is increasing. When they go to the crime scenes, as you know, they, they, you see it all over the street. You know, people are fi firing as many rounds as they possibly can. And that's something different than what they have seen in the past. You know, I agree with that because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when I was a young cop in New Orleans or a young chief in Nashville in New Orleans, um, the, the use of deadly force by organized groups and gangs or even just groups that are loosely organized, there was a rationality to it, as, as, as Jeff, really as sad as that sounds. And it would be don't kill a bunch of people who don't fall into our anger. Be selective. Be careful. We don't need this heat. We don't need the community getting mad at us because a child on their sofa in their front room had a bullet come through the door and kill them. I do think we need to be very seriously concerned that that messaging isn't really going on anymore inside the group of people who are choosing illegal action. Thus, hundreds of bullets on the scene. Ronald Surpass, Loyola University, New Orleans. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. You know, everybody's talking about inflation because when you go to the store to buy things, the prices are, well, inflated. This past week, CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Nancy Cordes had an exclusive interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. I asked the Treasury Secretary how long she thinks this high inflation is going to last and whether we are nearing the peak. Not surprisingly, she was unwilling to make any predictions, but here's what she did say. It is top priority to bring it down. The Federal Reserve bears a key responsibility for addressing the inflation situation. I'm not going to comment on how they should do that, but um, I think it's clear they're very committed to making progress, and we hope to see substantial improvement over the coming year. 
let's continue this look at inflation with Jacob Sunshine, who is the markets reporter for Barron's. Jacob, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what this rise in inflation really means. Because in the research that I've seen, uh, these experts say that it is a bad thing that the supply chain um, bottlenecks are improving. It's a bad thing that unemployment is so low and these businesses keep hiring. Could you explain to me why that's a bad thing? Yeah, because first of all, in terms of the supply chain, um, I would forget for a second about the global supply chain and all of the different components, and a lot of it comes from originates in China. Let's just zero in on, on one uh, industry for a second, retail. The reason that supply and retail is starting to catch up to demand, in fact, it has more than caught up. Now there's over, there's too much inventory in a lot of retailers. The reason for that is because demand is starting to get destroyed a little bit. Now, the economy is still running at a pretty good pace. We're still creating, in nominal terms, many that we're still producing a lot of dollars in value. Part of that is inflation, and part of that is the number of goods and services demanded, units. But that unit demand is starting to come downwards a little bit. Nominal activity is still pretty good because of price increases. But unit demand is starting to come down a little bit, and it's really happening in retail, which is a completely consumer-facing business. So retail inventories, they a lot of retailers were rushing to, to accrue inventory so they could meet the demand a little while ago. And now the higher prices are starting to eat in, are starting to reduce the number of items that consumers are demanding. And so now you, you actually have in retail specifically and a few other businesses, but specifically retail, you have too much supply. And that's just a reflection of unit demand destruction. And the reason that's happening is because of inflation itself, because inflation itself was initially driven by a burst of demand, trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus and monetary, of course. Um, but then supply couldn't catch up to that demand. Um, and then it, and that that's that's really destructive to demand because the demand is there and then there isn't enough supply. And that creates additional price increases that the consumer doesn't want. And then the consumer starts to spend less and buy fewer things. And then someone like a retailer ends up with too much inventory, and then they have to mark down prices. Anyway, I'm going on and on. It's becoming <laughs> an unhealthy dynamic in the economy. Yeah, that's that's a good way of describing it. And as you were trying to explain that to us, which you did a good job, but I was just thinking, okay, this is why I got a C in economics. This is why. Because it just seems like no matter what the Fed does, no matter what the government does, we're sort of losing this battle against inflation. And it, it seems like no matter what the Fed does, we're heading toward a recession. Is that right or wrong? Uh, I mean, it's, I don't think it's right or wrong. I, I think the, the I would forget about the government because there, there's, I mean, you, you could do things like induce, you know, fiscal stimulus or fiscal tightening. Um, you know, by drastic measures, we did drastic fiscal stimulus coming out of the pandemic. But outside of that, the the, the body that really has to, um, excuse me, influence inflation is the Fed. Uh, and I, 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 you know, that's just a that's just a monetary policy tool, the Fed. 
is the Fed having success at reducing inflation? Maybe a little bit, but not yet a lot. Let's remember a couple things. First of all, the Fed has already hiked rates a lot, and rates on credit are, uh, have started to come up. So you want your risk-free rate that the Fed is, is um, influencing to go up, and you want that to push up rates on credit, household bonds and corporate bonds. And that's starting to happen. Now, that can take a while to flow through the economy and start to reduce spending. Inflation itself has reduced, has reduced spending, but now we need higher rates to reduce spending. That can take a few weeks or a few months to flow through the economy because people will still spend a lot. And then after a while, they go, OK, this is, you know, you know my, I, my interest is too much, my credit card debt, whatever. It takes a little while. Now, it, one of the reasons it's taking a little bit longer than it probably should the Fed lifted rates really quickly is because the credit market has not 100% reacted yet. Rates on credit have gone up a little bit. But if you look at other recessions um, in the last you know, couple, a few decades, um, rates on credit went up by a much larger magnitude than they've gone up uh, this year. So we need to see the credit market start to react a little bit. And I think what's happening in the credit market and in the stock market is those, those risk markets are still reflecting a, a chance that the, that the Fed at some point will pivot. Okay, we've done enough damage to the economy, and now we're going to you know, hit the pause button on rate hikes. And that's why the price of corporate bonds are, is, is still high enough to where the rate hasn't gone that high. And it's gone up, but it's got to go higher. Risk markets need to do a better job of believing that the Fed is really, really trying to squelch demand uh, and, and reduce inflation. So it just hasn't really happened yet, but within the next few months, you know, I think you could set your watch by it. It's going to happen. But, you know, for those of us who are casual watchers of the stock market this past week, it looked like a pretty bumpy ride as if, you know, they saw these numbers and people were running for the exits. But the way I understand what you just told us is that the stock market still hasn't really factored in these these gradual rate increases. No, it hasn't. It, 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 it did in June. And, and I, don't, I actually don't think that we're going to retest the June low, um, but there's, there's a chance that we do. If we do, it might actually be a healthy thing. Because, look, the, 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 let's just look at the S&P for a second. It's, it's above 3,900. Uh, the low was uh, right a little above 3,600 in mid-June when, when markets were uh, really challenged. And at that point, what, what the stock market, and I, and I believe the credit market, um, where they were both selling off, what they were saying was, all right, we're really afraid of what the Fed's going to do here. Uh, and, and we are now comfortably above those price levels. If you look at the price of, of credit, the price of corporate bonds, and the, not mortgages, but the price, the price of corporate bonds and the price of stocks, um, they're up from those lows uh, in June. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at that's technical. But the other way to look at it is a little bit more uh, fundamental, more valuation-based. The S&P 500's PE multiple, and multiples in all the indexes are down this year. But for the S&P, the PE multiple is down to somewhere around 17 times forward earnings, maybe a little bit under 16.5, something in that neighborhood. That's down from above 20 earlier this year. With the 10-year yield a little bit above 3%, that's, uh, that, that higher risk-free rate on a long-term asset, which, is, which a stock is also a long-term asset. Higher a three percent risk-free rate on a ten-year security that really should push down um, the multiple on stocks, and it should actually push it lower 
than 17 or 16 times. And so what's happened is higher rates have pushed uh, 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 stock valuations down, um, but historically they should go down a little bit lower. And if they did, they would be reflecting a little bit uh, more risk to the cash flows that you get in a stock because the cash flows you get in a 10-year bond is higher now. And so if you, if you look at the way stocks really should trade historically on a PE multiple with a 10-year yield above 3%, you really should get more earnings risk reflected in that price in that multiple. It should be below 16 times. So, and, that's, and we were definitely below 16 times when we were at 3,600 on the S&P. So the, the stock market and the credit market are actually not 100% reflecting the Fed risk. All right. Um, Jacob, I'm, I'm really impressed with your knowledge of the markets and of inflation. Sidebar here. Where'd you go to college? I went to, uh, I went, I graduated from Hunter College. Ooh, in New York. Yep. I'm a New Yorker. I, I went to City College of New York, played baseball there, and, uh, and I, and then I graduated from Hunter. I'm from Westchester. I've been living in the city for uh, almost 10 years. I see. And so where did you develop this interest in economics? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, I appreciate it. You know, I, I, um, Definitely wasn't always, you know, uh, I, I it, when I was a kid, I didn't know anything about economics or finance. And uh, not that a lot of kids do, but I didn't even in college. I mean, in college, I, I you know, kind of had a moment where I realized I'm not going to play professional baseball. I need to get serious about something. So I thought about maybe, you know, sports journalism, staying in sports. I did journalism and and then I kind of I kind of realized through doing sports journalism in college that. Maybe I want to cover something like politics or business rather than sports. I just started taking more econ and reading textbooks and learning finance and learning how asset valuation works, you know, stocks, bonds. Um, and uh, uh, I got more and more into it. And I thought, why don't I just cover financial markets? Mm. Why didn't you go to Wall Street and make millions of dollars? Uh, I think about doing that sometimes. <laughs> but uh but I feel incredibly, um, you know, incredibly, uh, uh, and I don't, this is going to sound like gobbledygook, but I, I do feel this way. I feel honored to be at Barron's. It's been around for decades and decades. It's one of the premier financial news publications in the world. And every morning you wake up when you write for Barron's, you better be on. And I feel really, really uh, good that, that somebody gave me the opportunity to, to be there. Yeah, because these guys on Wall Street, they pay attention to what's in Barron's. Oh, I mean, listen, and we write for Wall Street people and, you know, um, you know, people, you know, people my age that aren't in finance. And they say, hey, Jacob, what's the stock market doing? But we but we also do have a really big readership that is on Wall Street. Some of my sources, I'll talk to them about a stock and they'll say, when are you putting this piece out? And they'll say they'll go, well, when you put your note out. My like, nope, like it's a research note. I mean, they read pieces in Barron's to really get perspective. They really take it seriously. And if you say something, if you ever say something wacky, I don't think I have, but if you like, if you did, they they would they would take it. They, they wouldn't think you don't know what you're talking about. They would be thrown. They would be like, do I need to reassess what I'm looking at here? And um, so that you know, 
Wall Street takes Barron seriously. So if you're a Barron's reporter, you better take it seriously as well. Let's go back to the main topic. And, you know, building off what you just told us about your background and Barron's, you know, in your initial answers, I, I felt this optimism. I mean, you're not, you're not, you don't sound panicked. Like, oh gosh, inflation is you know, killing our pocketbooks, the the future doesn't look, you know, it looks sort of, it's sort of a daunting economic picture. Uh, but is it really? I mean, it, or do you, do you see the silver lining ahead? Yeah, I mean, I, I, no, I'm, I don't feel panicked. Um, if it were a, a panic situation, I think it's okay to feel that way. I think in March 2020, the market panicked and that's okay. And it should have, and it did. Um, but, uh, but, you know, right, right now, I mean, I, I think in the reasons that you don't sense a lot of panic in what I'm saying is there are a few, a few things going on. I know that inflation beat expectations the other day, and I know that it's taking a while to decline, but declining it is. That's number one. Number two, when you have the price of oil and copper taking a dive as they have in the last few months that those those commodities are so widely purchased by businesses and people but by businesses that if they're coming down businesses if they feel they need to relax the price increases or dare i say mark things down they have a much better ability to do so and that could be that could be widespread now oil is only 12 percent of the CPI, consumer price index. But with the price of oil down, it could affect other things. Uh, and then, of course, CPI, headline CPI is declining a little bit. Oil drove a lot of that. Of course, CPI was a little bit sticky, but I, but it's still down from its peak. So those things are good. And, and then I think the last thing is it'll be a really, really good thing if the credit market and the equity market could not just take the Fed seriously, but taking it 100% seriously. And we could revisit the lows. I don't think we're going to. I can tell you why in a second. I don't think we're going to revisit those lows because, uh, I'm sorry, but if we did, it would be a healthy thing because then the cost of raising money, if you're a company raising debt or raising equity, or if you're a person raising debt for a car or a house, the cost of that goes higher, your demand goes lower, and we figure out the inflation issue. You asked me a few minutes ago, you know, why, how come the Fed hasn't you know, been able to get inflation down very much? And my answer is because markets aren't reacting enough. But when they do, when they do, it's all going to be okay. And I, I do think we're seeing the beginning of it um, in retail with the markdowns and, and over inventory that we're seeing there. Um, but I, I actually think what's, what's going to happen, um, at least in the equity market, is some of the, before we can revisit the low, there's going to be enough economic demand destruction. There's going to be enough that the market's going to keep looking through the next few quarters. And I don't think for that reason, I don't think we're going to revisit the low, but I think it's going to be really choppy and it's going to be a bit of a slow, painful process where inflation moderates, comes down very, very slowly. Hopefully it's not too painful. Jacob Sunshine, Barron's Markets Reporter. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully we could do it again. And I appreciate it. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhall in District Productive. 
You can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Changed Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.